Hey, uh, so, so, so good morning all, and you're really, really brave, or else you're just, you're just trying to atone for a lot, you know? I mean, um, we had really a, a really fine bumper day yesterday, and, and I'm super grateful for you guys doing that. It's, um, it's one of those neat things about the festival that, um, again, I just, you heard me say it in church, but I think it's right, is that we, we don't even really do this for ourselves. Um, the, the, the money we raise doesn't go to us, and, and I just commend you for that. It's a lot of effort to put on a nice day in the community and to raise money for the community. So, so super well done. So um, fatigue and rest are good things, and if you fall asleep during this, I'll consider that my spiritual gift because I have a hard time sleeping. And um, if I could go to church and sleep, I'd go there even more than I do. Uh, that'd be really good. Well, um, I wanted to check in with you because we're a small group. There's a couple of things I wanted to see if we could do. I think we're slotted to talk about the Nicene Creed, um, but maybe I could start out actually by, by, by sort of pushing a little bit more on sort of the scriptures this morning in relation to the creed and, 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 and seeing where you sit with this. You know, um, Part of the reason we, we have this, this creed, I'm positive, is so that we can set up a boundary um, of identity and we can say that you're a creedal Christian or you're not. And actually that's part of why the creed ended up get, getting developed because there were so many diverse and heterogeneous ways of practicing faith. The creed was designed to say this is sort of the litmus test between the true faith and sort of the not true faith. So there, there's plenty of negotiables inside the creed, but outside the creed there aren't. And that was sort of the goal. And, um, and I wonder about that. That's kind of been one of the things about Christianity that's been distinct from Judaism. You know, there's, there's really only three brands of Judaism maybe four, um, those being orthodox and conservative and reform. And um, of course, you know, there's something like more than 10,000 denominations of Christianity. And, and part of the reason we've done that, of course, is that we decided that belief and doctrine were crucial things, um, that, that it was not just sort of negotiable for people to approach the Eucharist as symbolic or as having the real presence. You had to know. It had to be one or the other, and that was sort of a line that we drew. Um, whereas in Judaism, honestly, there's, there's just a lot more sort of tolerance and, and, and mystery within the brands. Um, and this, in some ways, is part of the legacy of the creed, right, is once you have a creed, you've drawn a line that says in or out. And uh, in some ways, I think we've been struggling with that as a church for a long, long time to think about, you know, if we make a decision that changes tradition, are we watering it down? Uh, we've become really, really afraid that we're going to cheapen God's grace by giving it away too freely or by, you know, offering membership or services to people who may not have the right thoughts or the right practices, and I, and I think this is part of the legacy of even having the creed in the first place, which is not necessarily bad. I just think it's something that we have to deal with. So, you know, just to, just to think through this, when, when I was a young boy, I wasn't Southern Baptist. I belonged to a church called the Independent Christian Church, really small church. It's mostly only found in Kentucky and Ohio. And um, one of the rules for the church was we had communion every week, every week, and you had to be baptized to go to heaven. So if you weren't, too bad. And um, the communion we had every week was the juice and the little square wafer that looked like one of those, um, those little, the, anyway, it wasn't like what we have. It was like some kind of little wafer, super gross. And um, you could only have it after you'd been baptized too. So we did every week, but you had to be baptized to have it because that was like you're going to heaven and you can have it. Um, we were actually sort of taught that communion could be really dangerous for you that if you didn't do it with the right intention or motive, uh, that, that actually would do you spiritual harm. I'm just curious to know if anybody's heard that perspective, that if you do communion wrong, it can hurt you. Nobody? But you realize this is why the Roman Catholic Church prohibits non-Catholics from taking the Eucharist. It will hurt you if you take it. No, you don't know this? 
Yeah, I know. You, yeah, it's bad for you to have it. So, well, you're desecrating the sacrament because you don't belong to the one true faith. No, you're hurting yourself. It's like, it's like committing, well, I guess it's a mortal sin to, to, to have it. I mean, you're already a sinner anyway if you don't belong to the Catholic Church, but then to take the sacrament, and it, that's like just stacking it up. Like that becomes bad because that's the body and blood of Jesus, and if you don't believe that, you've disrespected the body and blood of Jesus. I know this is, seems a little bit weird, um, but this is, and, and there's plenty of Catholic priests that will tell you it's something different, but that's the doctrine, like that's it. And, and this is the thing about us is we were being compassionate when we prohibited people from having communion because that way we were preventing them from harming themselves. Uh, there's this part in 1 Corinthians where Paul says that some people are taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and they're eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. So by telling people who we knew were notorious sinners or who weren't independent Christians, like maybe they were Methodist or something, that they shouldn't have it, we were helping them because then they weren't eating and drinking judgment on themselves in their sinful Methodist ways. I mean, that was really sort of how we, 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 we grew up. I mean, I was so ignorant that when I walked by a Methodist church when I was 11, I thought it was part of the Ku Klux Klan because there was like a fire coming out behind the cross. And I thought that's the place where they burn crosses, the Methodist church. And, and, and that's not it at all. Um, and I'm offering this up to you not just because I talked a little bit about it in there, but, but because I think in some ways once we, we, we have a creed and that's the basis for participation, then, then that in some ways affects the way that we approach one another and one of the ways we approach God. I don't know if that makes sense. Just out of curiosity, um, anybody ever been told a big no by church? Anybody ever approached church for something? Like, hey, I'd really like blank, and church has, been, has responded no. I'll tell my story first. Uh, my wife's story, she's not here, so she won't get too mad probably. My wife grew up Southern, well, she grew up in a non-denominational church, sort of like I did. I mean, they didn't have a name because they, they were just themselves. They've now become Southern Baptists. But my wife felt really, really called to be a minister. Um, so she was really involved in youth groups. She went to Christian school her whole life. Um, and I, and I don't know if, if the conversation with, with her parents, I don't even know if there was a conversation exactly, but um, see, her problem is she was a woman. And so regardless of how she felt or God's intention, she just couldn't do it. And, and that was this really big thing, right, is that the church, she grew up with a church that told her no, a church that she really wanted to be a part of, and the fundamental stance of the church was no, and it was a creedal response, Right? In some ways, that was a litmus test for faith, whether women could, women could teach, but they couldn't preach. I don't really know the difference between those yet, except that, that they didn't want a woman up on the stage in their auditorium. But, but this my wife heard, and, and actually the no of the church was so strong that, that, that's, that that's kind of separated her from church I don't know about it irrevocably, but it's been really tough. You know? and, and it's one of these things where a lot of people say, well, just become a Methodist because they ordain women or just become an Episcopalian. But you can't really change your identity like that. You didn't change clothes because they suit you, right? I mean, you, you can't really change your name that you were given. Like, you didn't have a choice over that. Your, your upbringing you didn't have. And, and so she spent a long, long time trying to work within the system, but, it, but it, the system ultimately didn't have room for her. And that was the big no. Anybody else know stories? Churches told you no in, in a way like that? Well, um, I'm a stepmother, and all my husband's side is Catholic. And I knew that wasn't going to work, but my stepdaughter wanted me to become Catholic, and because I have grandchildren, and uh, I said, I'll go, and I, you have to fill out seven pages. And, the guy, and I said, but let's talk about this first. No, no, I want you to fill out all seven pages. I said, but let's go to page three before you start interviewing me. She said, well, why? And I said, because if what's on page three is going to bother you more than anything else, I can already tell you. So she flipped over to page three and went, 
You've been married before? Yeah. Well, we need to annul yours. I said, well, if you can find him, <laughs> go for it. You know? But then she said, your husband needs to annul his. And I said, I'm not going to, excuse my word, but I'm not going to do that to my stepchildren and make them, whatever, kids. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to do that to them. That's just, it's just not, I'm not doing it. Yeah, I mean, it was a really difficult thing. I had a dear couple in Coronado, and uh, husband had grown up Catholic, wife had grown up Episcopalian, and they'd both been previously married. They'd both previously had children, and to get married in the Roman Church, of course, they needed to annul their marriages. And but they'd had children, like they said, they had children, and their response is like, "We're not going to tell our children that they're bastards." Mm -hmm. We're not going to tell our children that, you know, that they were illegitimate because the truth is, like, I loved my husband when they were born, and, and, and your dad loved his wife when, when they were born, and, and we've always loved you, so we're not going to know you. Um, and, and I'm not picking on the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not. But I think that's one of the difficult things to do, right, is to sort of, and, and then you start to wonder for what reason, and, and it comes back really, this is the effect of, of creeds. Creeds make rules that you that sort of can set the line between in and out, right? And even if the rule sounds really arbitrary, like you have to have the right hardware to be a minister, or you have to have um, an annulment regardless of what your marital life looked like, um, that's that is what they do. And some of that was intentional, and, and 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 that's why I wanted to start this way to think through why we even have the Nicene Creed. interesting you know of course there's a million stories about how the church teaches blank but the priest did blank instead do you know what I mean I mean that's one of the neat things that I was talking to somebody after the service with about how in some ways there there are priests who will represent the church in ways the church doesn't want to be represented <laughs> and they're really grateful for those people because they break those rules, you know, and, 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 and honestly, you know, in the Episcopal Church, it's, it's, it's not much different. Every priest makes their own decisions, and because we have a strongly hierarchical polity, right, I mean, honestly, the, the rector or the bishop sets the rules even if nobody wants them, right? And, or, or the bishop can make one rule and a rector can do another or vice versa, you know, I mean, and, and, and sort of what's neat about our diocese, I think, is that when the whole issue came up about, and this is not, I don't mean in 2015, I mean years ago, about whether or not um, same-sex marriages could be performed in the diocese, the bishop can say categorically not a single one. That's within the bishop's domain to do that. Um, our bishop sort of said that he didn't want to make it a divisive issue that way. He wanted people to have access to the sacraments. So if people went through the process, they could have, there's some churches that could do it, and if other churches didn't want to go through the process, they couldn't do it. And in the end, there ended up being places, right, that went through the process and gave access. Um, and, and in some ways, that's an interesting middle-of-the-road thing because, because there's like a rule, but there's also looseness around the rule. You, you know, I, I don't want to say that's the best way to do it. I just mean there's, there's ways we negotiate it because part of that has to do, again, with the, the aftermath of when we say there's a creed that separates people between right thinking and wrong thinking. Say more about that, the 28 prayer book. Which is funny because it's not authorized. There's an interesting thing about bishops in the Episcopal Church, and I, I should probably be careful since I record these things, but, um, 
you know, my last rector in Coronado, who, who retired, so he, and his father had been a minister. Interesting stories, right? His father was the, the rector at the biggest church in Mobile in the 60s, and then because he came out against segregation, the white citizens council declared him public enemy number one and burned effigies of him. Um, um, so this is part, this is part of my, 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 my mentoring priest, you know, lineage. He'd been with the Episcopal Church a long time, and as he said, you know, he knew the warts and loved the church not in spite of, in some ways, because, because of the warts. I mean, that was an interesting thing. That was his legacy. But he said, you know, um, the truth of the matter is <laughs> it's always easier to ask forgiveness than permission. And I think part of the reason why is once you ask for a formal decision, then they have to put on the formal hat and answer you. But if you just do it, <laughs> and you've got a good reason to do it, you can always say, well, I just didn't know what your proclivity was. You know, and there's, there's room. And, and honestly, I've had bishops tell me the same thing. I've had bishops say, here's the rule, but just work that out with your rector which is really them saying, don't tell me what you're doing. <laughs> Not formally. Because then I might have to make a formal judgment about it, and I'd rather you just work that out, however it goes. That's sort of weird, isn't it? But I'm not just trying to, 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 to have this weird conversation. I want you to think through, here we are, uh, 1,700 years later almost, and this is what the creed has put us in the position of needing to do. Does that make sense? For worse, but also for better, right? For better, so that there is in some ways common identity. And that was the struggle is how can people of disparate beliefs and disparate practices still say that they're one body? I mean, I think that's really the question that the creed, the creed is one way of answering that question. Does that, does that kind of make sense? So it's a great question. Sherry asks, what's the view on same-sex marriage? And the truth is, it depends which Episcopalian you ask. Okay. So what happened in 2015, and I want to... Did we do this before the Supreme Court? Does anybody remember? We did it after the Supreme Court, but only like a week after. And I don't think the Supreme Court... I think the convention was already set. What happened in 2015, real surpriser, is that the Supreme Court struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, right? And what that meant was... Hitherto,fore you could get married as a same-sex couple in, I think, California and Vermont and just a few other states, right? Um, and California passed that by proposition, which was a, a weird thing that California does. They have these propositions. Um, well, they struck down the DOMA, and that meant all of a sudden, from that day forward, every single state now recognized, and this is where wording gets confusing, I think, civil unions between same-sex or heterosexual couples were now recognized nationally, federally, right? Because that's really the deal is that you've got this federal tax deal. I guess states could prohibit you from in their state income tax, but not after that, right? I mean, and the issue is just done, totally done at that point. Well, it wasn't but a week or 11 days or something after that that the Episcopal Church had its general convention, which they have every three years. Next year, it's in Austin. Oddly enough, this is the biggest democratic gathering in the world, the, the triennial Episcopal convention. There's something like 1,200 delegates. So just think through in Congress, there's 450 people, you know, and it's, so it's bigger that way, right? Um, <clears throat> they decided at that convention, which the church had been fighting over this for a long, long, long time, that, that um, same-sex marriage was a sacrament. So prior to 2015, you could have a same-sex blessing, but not a same-sex marriage in the church. And this is confusing because we use the marriage in civic life and we use it in church. That word marriage, it means really different things. Really what, what the Supreme Court said is everyone can have a civil union in the eyes of the state. You can be civilly un, joined. Um, but then the, the Episcopal Church said you can have this. However, because of our, our government system, um, the, the general convention can't require a bishop to make a particular ruling in her or his diocese. This is really weird, but what it means is the National Convention could say, yes, it's a sacrament, but the bishop, and I'll just pick somewhere arbitrarily, the bishop of South Carolina, let's say, could say not in my diocese, and it won't happen there. Oh, 
If it did, the bishop could actually dispute it with the government, saying oh, my priest was not authorized to do that. Or even worse, the bishop could tell the priest, you can't serve communion in my diocese again, which makes them unemployable. Does that make sense? Because that's what you need. I mean, really, that's about all you need me to do. You guys are pretty effective otherwise. But, but, but I just get to wear this little white thing, and, and, and so like I'm your communion guy. But, but that's sort of the deal. So to be honest with you, it's still a mixed question, because honestly, uh, I don't know if there's any bishops that prohibit it in their diocese, but some, some dioceses are very forward with it, like the Diocese of L.A. very quickly, early on, um, <clears throat> elected a suffragan bishop who was outspokenly gay, and, and, I, and, I, and they'll tell you that's part of why they elected her. She's a great lady, so it wasn't just that, but that was part of their consideration, is they were trying to take a national stance on where they stood as a diocese. Every church in L.A., affirmative of that? No way. You know, because L.A. goes down in Orange County. I mean, this is, this is a hard thing, right? So, so there's always this discrepancy. And by the way, it's, I think this is not following a rabbit. When the creed comes out in 325, it had that same kind of effect where people are like, what do you mean you're saying we're not Christian? We've been doing this for 100 years. And now you've told us, what, you know, who are you to tell us this is what we've been doing? So I, I hope I'm not overstretching this, but that's exactly the kind of thing that the, that the, that the creed was doing. And, and, then, and then where are we now? You know, um, honestly, most, most churches, because it was real painful, just don't want to talk about it. We're afraid we'll make somebody upset and they'll leave. Or we're afraid that we'll become that one-issue church. I'm just, just being honest. I don't know where you are with this. I don't know if you've been in other churches... I've been in other churches, <laughs> a few, just, just two, really, as a, as a, as a regular sort of, sort of goer. And one of them wouldn't talk about it. The other one did. Some people left when we talked about it. Most people didn't because they didn't have anywhere to go. We lived on an island, and nobody was going to drive off the island to go to church. That's just, we just didn't, you just didn't leave the island, you know. Now, granted, it was only 10 minutes, but, but that just seemed like forever when you had to drive over a bridge, you know. We just weren't going to leave the island. So, so, so some people begrudgingly participated in that conversation, but they didn't leave because, again, there's really, if you like the Episcopal Church, you don't have a choice. There's just nowhere like the Episcopal Church except the Episcopal Church, you know. I mean, that's sort of the deal. Um, and creedal stuff, the same. And what happened, interestingly enough, um, and I hope I'm not pushing this too far, but um, the whole history of this, of this particular issue, and this is in some ways like a creed, is that we don't, as a church, always make decisions intellectually. A lot of times what happens is something provokes a decision that we weren't going to talk about. So just, I'll give you an example. Um, the reason women became ordained in the Episcopal Church is not because we had some national conference and talked about the theological merits of that. They'd been doing that for a long time. What happened was a bishop ended up ordaining some women. <laughs> and then the church, this had happened, and, and well, you can't undo what a bishop did. I mean, that's part of our polity. If the bishop ordains, that's what happened. And then the question was, what do we do now? Do we say no more of that? And if we say no more, another bishop could be renegade and go do it, and, and it would count, you know? I mean, that was sort of the thing. And that's what happened in the early 70s. Again, it happened because someone did it, not because we decided it'd be all right. Does, does that make sense, what I'm saying? And interestingly enough, with the other thing, it happened because a diocese elected a priest to be bishop who, who was gay. And, and then they consecrated him. And the whole church was like, wait a minute. You, you, uh, we're not sure you should have done it. Well, they'd already done it. That was, they'd already done it. And then the church spent 12 years figuring out what to do about that. Because once you consecrate a bishop, you have. You can't unconsecrate them. You can't say, never mind. I mean, that's, our polity doesn't work that way. The church can never take an ordination back. The bishop would have had to give it up. Well, Gene Robinson was not giving it up. I mean, he, he was really honored and pleased to do it, and New Hampshire was really happy to have him. Um, but, but what you need to hear is um, nobody met and waited out first. The thing happened, and then they said, what do we do now? 
and it took a long, long time. And many of you who were members of the Episcopal Church, doesn't matter what diocese you're on, we call this the unpleasantness. Because in 2003, it started to be unpleasant. In 2006, when the, the, the um, National Church met and said, we're studying it, some people said, it's taking too long, we're done. In 2009, when the National Church said, this is where we are, we're going to go forward this way, a lot of people said goodbye, and we're taking the building with us. And that became really unpleasant. All those people lost in court, right, because we don't own the building. No, no one won that case, but lots of people tried. And that became very divisive and fractious. There's a number of churches in San Diego, like five, that used to have 400 people coming on a Sunday morning that were then all of a sudden reduced to 30 because they all left. South Carolina this year. The whole diocese left, right? Yeah. Because of the same-sex marriage, that's the one they picked. Now, again, I'm not trying to overdo this. I'm trying to say, yeah, this is what cre- yeah. This is what creeds do. And a lot of people, and it's interesting now, because there's some people I've talked to who said, you know, I'm not really sure what I think about the issue, but what I like about the Episcopal Church is at least we've decided where we are, so now we're just going to go forward. You know, we're not going to keep having this bickering. We've made a decision. But I don't think that's necessarily true. I think a lot of people are not sure about the decision. Again, I'm only spending time on this contemporary to, so that you can think back to what that creed was like when people heard that what they'd been doing was not Christian anymore, and they'd always thought it was. And that's the effect of Nicaea. It was such a big deal that people didn't just leave their buildings because they didn't have any. People went and lived in the middle of the desert so that the government wouldn't tell them what to do. <laughs> We've had that happen in the United States, right? I'm just thinking about Jonestown, right? Well, okay, we'll just go down to South America where there's no, you know, where we can do whatever we want to do. That didn't work out well there um, <laughs> for anybody, I don't think. But, but that's what creeds do, is they, is they, you know, the intent is to come up with a unity statement, and unless you, how can you come up with a unifying statement that's big enough to include anybody? In some ways, you're better not coming up with one. Does that, do you, do you get what I'm saying? Weren't there a lot of um, groups that really didn't follow the creed for long yeah, and one of the most important people was the emperor himself. The emperor presided over a creed that he did not believe in. Constantine was without a doubt an Arian. And I sort of two weeks ago introduced this, and that's where I'm going to pick up today, and just maybe pick it up right now. Constantine was the one who ended up going from being one of the four Caesars to being a co-emperor to reconquering the whole empire. So what, what Constantine did is reunite a fractured Roman Empire. And of course, he's famous because he moved the capital from Rome to the actual center of the empire at that time. I mean, think how big the Roman Empire had spread out, and, and Rome is way over there, uh, and he made Constantinople, right? I mean, this is his sort of deal. And um, part of what Constantine wanted to do is unite a fractured empire. I mean, just think about that. There were four different parts of the empire. He'd militarily beaten them, but you can beat somebody in battle and not necessarily win their affection or their loyalty. Right? So, so this is something that he tried to do. In some ways, he was conciliatory after winning with that hope. Um, <clears throat> he was also a recent convert to Christianity. He'd only been Christian for 13 years, so he'd been a pagan much longer than that. It's important to know. Um, converted in 312 at the bridge, and then presided over the, the Council of Nicaea in 323, and the creed comes out in 325, um, issues the invitation in 323. Um, part of his hope probably was to have a unified Christianity like having a unified empire. That didn't mean everybody did the same thing, but not infighting and bickering. Because remember, I told you that in 318, Constantine himself weighed in against the Donatists. Those were the people who said, if during the persecution you sacrificed to the genius of the emperor, if you did that, you could no longer offer sacraments. There was no coming back from that. You could go to church, but you couldn't have a leadership position because you'd compromised your integrity. Do any of you have any empathy with that position? Nobody does? 
I do. I don't understand. <laughs> well, the deal was, right, that during the great persecution, they would come up to you and say, I've heard you're a Christian. You're either going to sacrifice or offer a sacrifice to Caesar's genius, or I'm going to kill you. And that was the test on the spot. If you did, fine. And what a lot of priests, said, priests and bishops said was, my congregation would be worse off without me. So I would offer the sacrifice, and then I would repent. But Donatus said, if you did that, fine, you're still alive, but you can't be a priest anymore. Because you've compromised your integrity too much. Well, Constantine got involved in that conversation and said, hey, you Donatus, you better quit it. <laughs> because the sacrament is not dependent on the priest, it's dependent on God. Now, that's kind of a cool position, but it's got its limits. Because if you found out a priest was a child molester, don't you think that would affect how you'd approach the sacraments coming from them? I'd just be honest about that. You're a bigger man than I am, Bob. I might go to their parish, but I wouldn't have them baptize my kids. I'm just being honest, right? That's part of the struggle. It doesn't make God, it doesn't diminish God's grace. It doesn't diminish the act. Yeah. Well, that's ultimately the church's ruling, right? And I think that's the right ruling, even though we live in that... Yeah, no, it's right. But we, but we do live in that uncomfortable tension, right? So if said person were to baptize my daughter, I wouldn't say she needs to be rebaptized. That's really the bottom line, right? If they did it and I later found out they were a scumbag, it wasn't them doing it anyway. It was God. Does that, I mean, I think that's the church's position. But that became so strong for Constantine that he physically suppressed the Donatists. What do you mean? Just denying the sacraments to anybody. Oh, with a priest withholding them. Yeah, the sermon's somewhat about that today. <laughs> yeah, it's a, and that's a struggle. That's a struggle. But, but see, that becomes an interesting thing. When you have a creed that says sacraments, and of course the creed doesn't say this, but when you start to think sacraments mean X, Y, and Z, if they don't mean X, Y, and Z to you, I shouldn't give them to you. I mean, that, this is part of how this thing goes. Right? And in some ways that becomes compassionate denial, not aggravated assault. <laughs> and, and I think that's helpful to think through. Right? I mean, I do. I don't know what that means. Well, oh yeah. So, so, again, so again, for example, right, uh, and, and this, is a, this is a big deal, going back, uh, I, I'm, I'm needing to pick on a different denomination than, than our Roman friends. I've done that too much. Um, well, again, I grew up in the independent Christian church, which is okay to pick on because probably none of you know that that even exists. And um, if we weren't baptized and we went up for communion, and it came to us, we passed little trays, you know, with juice and stuff. Um, but if we weren't baptized and we took it, it hurt us spiritually. That was bad for you. Yeah. So, so it was in the parishioner's best interest to say you shouldn't have that because they were actually helping you from, from spiritual harm. In, in some ways, it wasn't them trying to be a jerk. In their mind, they were helping you out. Because <laughs> that's how we were formed. You, you, you know. And again, that's something that creeds do. When communion means blank, that's what it means. And, and because we're coming up on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, it might be helpful for you to know that Martin Luther in, in, in northern Germany and Ulrich Zwingli, who represented most of Switzerland, had a meeting about could they unite and have a common cause. And there were 14 points to work out, and they worked out 13 of them. And what they couldn't decide was whether or not the Eucharist was symbolic or it had the real presence of Jesus. Now, those things are so close to each other, I, I don't, you know, you think about it, but Luther said, to hell with you. That's what he said. <laughs> and um, that's why there was a Swiss Reformation and a German one. And Luther, because his view of the sacrament was so strong that if you said, and we would say this, it's just symbolic instead of it having the real presence of Jesus. Well, a real you can be a symbol with the real presence of Jesus. You know what I mean? It can be both. He wasn't interested in, in extending the range of what the sacrament could mean because he was afraid he'd dilute it too much. 
And that was not something he was going to come into any agreement on. Uh, meanwhile, Zwingli, um, you know, I think was actually relatively surprised by Luther's obstinacy and after a certain point said, well, to heck with you too. We'll just do our own thing in Switzerland. And, and, and this was one of those moments for people to, to, to find some common ground and we, and we didn't find it. And, the, and, and the, the thing we fought over was about the Eucharist, which today is the most divisive thing between Christians, how you celebrate the Eucharist. <laughs> And whether you call it the Lord's Supper or communion, you have an ecumenical gathering, the thing you can never have is communion. You can sing songs, that's fine. You can have a sermon. Don't you dare bring out communion at an ecumenical gathering because that's the thing we fight about the most. It goes back 500 years, even older. And part of this, again, starts with Constantine physically suppressing heresy. The interesting thing about about Nicaea, where I got to last time. I better pick up now so that I don't bog us, unless you want to be bogged down. Are you enjoying being bogged down? It's okay. You know... There are still churches in the East that participate in Christianity, I'll put it that way, uh, without following the creed. That's absolutely right. Bob says there's, there's churches that participate in Christianity without following the creed. And... And, 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 and I'm just going to give you some contemporary examples of where this becomes really difficult, okay? Because when, when, when I was in youth group, of course, what, what they wanted to do was, was make it so that we would never do any kind of backsliding into false doctrine. We were most afraid of false doctrine because if we believed the wrong things, we'd be terrible people. So beyond, you know, avoid sex, drugs, and rock and roll, uh, those are really bad, and, and, you know, premarital sex could lead to dancing, so stay away from that. Um, we learned those great moral things. But the other thing that we learned, honestly, we spent a lot, this is in youth group. I was 12 years old. We learned about all the cults so that we would know not to join a cult. Like the Catholic Church and... The, exactly right, because when we spend our time talking about how other people are blah, 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 we've set ourselves up to be this, this one true cultic place, you know. But, but what's interesting, like Bob said, is, I mean, I learned that the word Mormon was synonymous with cult. That was the most dangerous, insidious cult. Right next to the New Age movement and Scientology was the Mormon church. Now, if you ask a Mormon, are you Christian or are you Mormon? They would say, of course, I'm Christian. I'm a Mormon. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? When we were trained, you were one thing or the other thing. And we were trained that you weren't a Catholic Christian. You were either Catholic or you were Christian. No. And this is what Bob's saying, because, uh, yeah, and, and, and this is part of the reason the creed's so stinking long. If you've ever wondered, why is it so long? Because people had huge disagreements, not just about the Trinity, but about the nature of Jesus. That was really the biggest thing, what right? they believe in the Trinity? How it came to be? How the order of it is. Is one better than the other? Are they, are they all on the same plane? You know, our friends, the Unitarians, are non-Trinitarian. That's their point. They're Unitarian. One, not three. Uh, there's folks in um, Ethiopia. This is the Ethiopic Church. Maybe you've heard of them before. In, in, in uh, the big church in, in um, Egypt are the Coptic Christians. And they'll tell you Jesus didn't have two natures. He had one. He wasn't human and divine. He was one or the other. It's called monophysitism. Right? I told you before, when the Pope does this, he's not making the peace sign. That's supposed to represent the two natures of Jesus. That he's fully God and fully human. And it, that comes out of this sort of creedal stuff. Of course, the other three are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the five fingers are supposed to be the five wounds of Jesus. So all that's supposed to mean something, right? That's, that's sort of the deal. But this is the same true if you're... Um, some of these other Orthodox churches beyond the Greek Orthodox are monophysite churches. One nature to Jesus. He was fully divine and just looked human. Fully human, and we thought he was divine, but... He just was a really good person. 
And those, that's some of the dividing lines that get set up in Nicaea. And, and they can find reasons to argue about the nature of the two natures. Absolutely. Whether it's more like oil and water or something that mixes better. That's right. And that became, a, 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 you know, that just that idea about the two natures of Jesus became a reason that Christians killed each other. <laughs> I mean, with swords, like attacked and killed each other. It wasn't just the Reformation. And again, I'm not saying this is what the creed did to us, it's bad. I'm just saying up front, anytime we have a creed, we're saying who's in and who's out, right? And, and, and this becomes very, very difficult to do. And, and again, when we make rules, when we make canon law, whether we mean to or not, we're creating outsiders. And, and, and maybe that's okay. I just want you to think through that's what happens when we do it. So <clears throat> what Constantine does after um, basically telling the Donatists to convert or I'll kill you, um, he calls this, this big ecumenical council. Everybody, as I told you, he pays for this. Um, the, the bishop gets to bring two... I think it's one or two priests with them and like a courier. They get free transport. If the council says you're a heretic, they get to go home for free too and safely. That's sort of a big deal so that people can come and have this council and decide really um, who's in and who's out. I mean, that's the point of the council, right? And they bring people, as I mentioned to you, who are wealthy and well-dressed and well-educated from Alexandria. And they bring people who, during that great persecution, only 25 years earlier, you know, were starved and imprisoned and beat, and they come in wearing homespun clothes, looking like they're from India, you know, uh, like, like Gandhi did during that cotton march. Um, people who look like that, um, people who, like St. Anthony, sold everything they had and lived in the desert, and people who basically lived a palatial priestly existence because in their town, Christianity was really good. So this is, you thinking through, this is like one of the most diverse assemblies ever called in the history of the world. It's important to know that. Because you're thinking about, this is the known world to the West. This is going all the way out to Iran and Spain, all the way up to England, all the way down to the bottom of Africa. I mean, this is a huge geography to bring people in, considerable expense. And I left off telling you last time that one of the central issues um, between, between, at the council was on the nature of Jesus. And particularly, I told you that there was a tall, popular, charismatic priest from Alexandria, black, named Arius, who believed that Jesus was a created being. He, he believed this based on scripture, where Christ is called the firstborn of all creation. Arius said, listen, there's God, and there's Jesus under God, the very first thing. And sure, all creation was made by and through Jesus, but Jesus was created by God. See, if you're first born, it implies you've been born. <laughs> and that means you're not eternal. You're not co-eternal with the Father. You're underneath. So, you know, this is one of those weird things from geometry that we just have to think through. I don't know, do you remember that a line is a transversal in space? Do you remember that? <laughs> And if I asked you how far does it go that way, you'd say, and if it goes that way, it's infinity. And if I asked you how long is the length of that line, you would tell me it's infinite. Here's the weird thing about infinity. Do you know what this one's called? It has a point and then goes out like that. It's not called a line. It's called a, it's called a ray. A vector has magnitude and direction. Yes, yeah, so it could be a vector. But we could call it a ray in geometry, right? Endpoint goes out infinite. How long is a ray? Which one's longer, a line or a ray? Don't you hate geometry? I mean, that is so counterintuitive. This one is twice as infinite as that one is. Do you know, this is funny though, right? If you study, this is why I'm not a mathematician. I have a math degree, but I like to solve problems. What mathematicians like to do is make more problems. Uh, that's what real math people do. They say the world is calm enough. Let's make some more problems. Interestingly enough, you can read uh, higher mathematics and there's levels of infinity. Anybody learned this before? It's interesting, it's this, uh, a Hebrew guy came up, it's, it's given the Aleph system. So that's infinity class one, and this is a diminished class of infinity class two. Um, I don't really understand that, but, but I did learn about it. <laughs> so, so, so 
what I'm trying to say with that, right, is if you're Arius, you can say, look, Jesus is, is eternal like God is, but in sort of a lesser class of eternality. And that logically makes sense, right? Even though, paradoxically, the ray's as long as the line. That's, doesn't that drive you crazy? It's all in the expression, has no beginning, has no end. I suppose so. This is what they were arguing. And Arius, as I told you before, was, a, was super charismatic. The big thing that we know he did was that he came up with doctrines and he put them into popular tunes. Martin Luther did that with A Mighty Fortress. That was a German, a German drinking song, and he just changed the words. So this would be like changing the words to like Taylor Swift's song, Shake It Off, that's now three years old, to, 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 to be about the nature of Jesus. And sure enough, people are walking around Nicaea singing the Arian version. And, and that's why the real issue behind Nicaea is called the is is called Arianism or um, the Arian controversy it comes from the priest named Arius who represented a major thought which was God's up in heaven the Father and then there's Jesus and then the Holy Spirit is somewhere maybe even but maybe down here but you see there's a hierarchy in heaven and of course if you're the Emperor I mean, just let's think, think through this compassionately. If you're the emperor, you're really happy for earth to look like heaven, where you're up on top like God, and then everybody else is worthwhile like Jesus below you. Interestingly enough, Constantine, without a doubt, was an Arian until he died. He believed that Jesus was of a second class, albeit higher than everything else in the world, or, or in heaven, second-class nature to God the Father. And this is really what they did at Nicaea. And, and what I told you is interesting about this is that Constantine produced a creed that was against his own theology. And he didn't change his theology. <laughs> he stayed an Arian until he died. In some ways, he came to regret, regret um, what happened. Um, Arius' main opponent was... Um, Oh my gosh, I can't remember if his name is Stephen or Alexander, but the Bishop of Alexandria, who later was taken, that, that opinion was later, this guy was a priest at the time of Nicaea, not a speaker. Um, he's made it in the prayer book. Um, if you think the Nicaean Creed's long, read the Athanasian Creed. Uh, Athan it, it's in the back. Uh, Athanasius became important after Nicaea as a defender of the creed. He didn't do much at Nicaea. The big players were, um, gosh, I can't remember if it's Stephen or Alexander and Arius. And they basically held the sway because at that time, Alexandria was the most educated, um, influential cosmopolitan city in the world. It had the library. It was also filthy rich, you know, it was just sort of out there in the Nile Delta. And it would be sort of like the Oxford of its day with Harvard. So you've got to take, and the Sorbonne, you just take those three and put them together, and that was Alexandria. So they really were having the formal debate on behalf of the rest of the world. People had inclinations and thoughts, you know. At this council were people wearing the white vestments that you see us wear now, and people wearing... Um, the, the Jewish Pharisaic vestments that look more like the Orthodox one, you know, like the black hat with the veil. And then there's people who are wearing habits and people who are wearing homespun and people who are wearing street clothes. I mean, really incredibly cosmopolitan. And they all have different natures on this. And, and the goal here is to take these people who have nothing in common culturally, historically, and find the kernel of their unity. A tough order, you know. You, you know how we've done this as an Episcopal church, interestingly enough. Uh, I think this is right. The Episcopal church is not united in doctrine. We're united in worship. Of course, one informs the other, right? But, but that's been the goal of the Episcopal church is that um, we worship together, especially when we disagree. Now, that's kind of a cool thing to think about. That's the kind of adulthood that we rarely, rarely practice. But, but it seems very adult to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not good with it myself. I'm extremely judgmental. <laughs> but, 
but it seems the right way to go. Uh, that's not what happened here. So, so again, we end up with this creed. As I told you last time, the thing that the creed doesn't talk about at all is the Holy Spirit. All that happens in 325 is uh, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's the end of the creed. All that other bit about proceeds from the Father and from the Son, light um, and, and worship with the Father and the Holy Roman Catholic Church and all that sort of, Holy Catholic Church and all that, that comes in 381 at the Council of Chalcedon. That's also when we got our New Testament books set. So in 325, there's all this diversity, including what books of the Bible people think belong in the Bible, and Nicaea didn't solve that. So some people were not reading the book of James, and after Nicaea, they still weren't. And some people were reading the book of, it's called The Shepherd of Hermas, and they, they went home with that and kept reading it, like in church. Uh, some people were reading um, the book of First Enoch in church. After this, they went home and still read it. After 381, they weren't supposed to do that anymore. If, if, you're, if you had a book that wasn't on the list, you weren't supposed to read it in church. Does that, does that sort of make sense? But te testament to great diversity. We weren't even all reading the same Bible. Okay? And that didn't get settled here. Really, this big issue that got settled. And as I told you, we've even changed the creed. The big change came in, in the 70s from I believe to we believe. And then comes this really interesting thing that I think the church universal still has to really get our heads around and it comes up at the first part in the creed. What does it even mean to believe something? You know, I mean, I think in general, English has such a range on, on what the word can mean. You know, if somebody, if somebody tells you something, like your little kid says, I didn't take that cookie, and, and golly, all the evidence points to them taking the cookie. And, but you say, like, I believe you. In some ways, you're speaking about the fact about the cookie, but in some ways, you're also saying that you have a trust in the person that, tr that transcends the facts. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, as a parent, I'm like 95% good at telling when my kids are lying. There's that little 5% variance, you know? But there's times where I know for a fact they're telling me the truth, even though all the evidence points to the other. And in those moments, I believe you. Do, do you know what I mean? Have you ever said that to your kids? I'm, I don't mean like questioningly, like you were positive what they said was right, even though everything else looked wrong, and you said, I believe you. Just think about the range of what that means, right? So in some ways, you can believe your kids or you can believe somebody else because it's some kind of fact, but in other ways, you, you can believe somebody in a way that transcends like your factual brain. Um, I think I've told you this before, and this is one of the things about the creed that can be helpful for us. You know, um, so often in church, I think, I think we think about this word as being something that's factual or something that's a cognitive assent. The truth is, I know lots of Christian people that believe the right things, and they're jerks. Don't you? I mean, they have really strong doctrinal positions, but... I find them hateful and spiteful and cruel. And, and I don't want to believe much of what they believe. Do you know what I mean? Even though all the, the, the box sort of are right, they're just nasty, unhappy people. Anybody, you know what we're talking about? <laughs> um, I know other people who like, seem to not believe any of the right facts, but are, but are charitable and just, you know? And, and they seem like they've got a deeper level of belief going on. Does that resonate? You know, when you started down that path, I thought you were talking about what level of doubt that might be acceptable. Well, I'm talking... Yeah, I think I'm talking about that too, right? So, so some of us have grown up in the kinds of traditions where belief has to be ironclad. You're not allowed to have any kinds of doubts, and if you do your proportion of, of doubt reveals how poor a Christian you are. It's interesting to me, right? Because if you only do things you're certain in, I'm not really sure what the belief is. I mean, I'm not sure what the faith is, right? Because I think faith is, is hope. The, the scriptures say, right, evidence of things unseen. <laughs> so if it's all seen and you all know everything, that doesn't really require any faith. Like, you just know that. I don't mean that we act foolishly because we don't know things, but, you know, this, I think, has been this interesting thing. Do you believe in the Virgin Mary? Well, 
sure, I believe Jesus had a mother named Mary. But you know that question is not asking that. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Do you believe in the virgin birth? That's a very specific question, not designed to say, was there something special about Jesus, but it happened just like this. Do you believe in the Immaculate Conception? Anybody even know what that one is? <laughs> the Immaculate Conception? That's where St. Anne, when she conceived Mary, there was a miracle worked with Mary's father and his sperm was no longer shriveled. God unshriveled the sperm so that Mary was born without original sin. I think that's, I think that's nuts. I'm sorry, I just think that's crazy. I, have, I can't understand why God would need to do that. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't, be, wouldn't the miracle be that, that God can come from regular human beings instead of special ones? If God only does special things with special people, that's not even miraculous. That just makes sense. Right? Wouldn't it be more miraculous if God could do special things from just dirty, broken human beings? There'd be hope for me. And it, that's the whole thing. But you know the thing about creeds is it does matter, right? That's what we've decided is that these are the things worth dying over. And, and that's where we forget, right? And, 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 and that's because if, if it looks like this, if belief looks like yes or no, and and those are your two choices. There's no box that says, like, I think so, or probably, or 90% of me says yes. You, 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 you have to falsely pick a position that, that you don't even hold, right? I mean, just, just think through that. Those are your two choices, and they're 100%. How much of your life is lived that way? When you're honest, how much of your life are you 100% certain about? If you are, I don't think you've ever been a parent or a spouse. I mean, I just, you know, I'm 100% certain that I care about my kids, but any individual, any individual decision, whew, I mean, I'm happy with 60%, you know, like 60 is a good number. And, 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 and I've, had, I've had days and years in my marriage where 60 was a good number. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, forgetting that yes and no is like, uh, what do you want? You know, that was, that's where belief was. So in some ways, what we've done is taken a really, and we actually use this term very, very loosely, and we've flattened it to mean this or this. And when that happens, when that happens is when the creed, I think, becomes dangerous. What I want to tell you is we have an opportunity when you think about the creed to, to think about the, the bandwidth of that word and make it a lot bigger. So, so just, just so I can do this with you real fast, this, this comes, and I won't belabor this because I know we've got to go. This, this actually comes from a series of, of Latin words. They all get translated the same way. Um, I'm, I'm probably spelled these wrong or pronounced them wrong. But one, one way that um, Latin gets translated to believe in English is from fiducio. That's you're thinking about somebody who's a fiduciary. That's a responsibility. So, I, so my belief is expressed through responsibility. It's a stewardship term. Another way is through um, the word visio, which is a way of seeing. Right, a way of seeing. And, and that goes back, I think, to the way you see your child when the evidence looks bad, but, you, but, you're, but you're confident in them in that way, right? You, you're looking at them, not the other things. So it's, just, it's a way of looking at the world, honestly. Think how different that is from just this, right? A, a way of looking. And then there's this other one um, that's something like fidelitas or something like that, which is that fidelity word, right? So, so belief is, in English, arrived at from these sort of Latin roots. And, and, and he's not with us anymore, but Marcus Borg, interesting writer, says, you know, this word's become so saturated in this idea, maybe it'd be, it'd be interesting if instead we said, um, we beloved God. He, he argues really big about these wholesale linguistic changes that when a word becomes so polluted into this action, it's kind of hard to redeem it. I'm not sure that's right. I think, I think there's something worth to redeeming words because this is what the word used to mean. Only recently has it become diminished to that. But this is an interesting concept, right? To think that the creed, instead of it being a, a, a litmus test fact check, is us saying, uh, God, in the middle of my doubt, somewhere in these boxes, I'm choosing to love you. I'm choosing to trust you. And that's where a creed comes, changes from a statement of faith to a prayer. And we say every week that we pray the creed, not that we proclaim it. Do you, do, do, do you know what I mean? 
Okay, that's where we'll pick up in two weeks. Next week, uh, we're going to do acolyte training. You might think that's just for young people, but it's not. Being an acolyte is a really great thing to do, especially with grandchildren and children and with your spouse and on your own. So if you're ever interested in being an acolyte, next week we'll have an acolyte training during the forum. If you don't want to do that, then enjoy some coffee, look at some beautiful stained glass windows, go home, have a nice day. Uh, but we'll come back to the creed in two weeks.